In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Judas took the money, 30 pieces of silver in exchange for his beloved teacher. The coins rattle in his money bag as he creeps out at the head of a mob to betray his Lord. The sign has already been arranged. Judas still thought he was a trusted friend of Jesus. After all, he had spent much time with Jesus over these past three years. Judas was there, by Jesus' side at the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus taught the people of the wisdom of God. He was there when Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. He was there when Jesus walked on the water and calmed the storm with but a word. Judas had stood by Jesus' side. He was, as Matthew's Gospel reminds us, one of the twelve. Jesus' trusted inner circle. But now, thirty pieces of silver rattle in his money bag. Judas' greed has outweighed his loyalty. And now he sneaks after his trusted Lord under cover of night, at the head of a crowd, to arrest Jesus. Something has changed. That something is that Satan has entered Judas. And Satan hates the Son of God with a fiery passion. So he inflamed Judas's greed. He whispered doubts in his ear, and Judas listened. He was led astray by the lies of the devil. He was one of the twelve, but not really anymore. Judas had picked his side, and he stands against Jesus. Three years of friendship and trust will be used to hand Jesus over to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he will betray Jesus by a symbol of that friendship, by a kiss. The mob comes to the agreed-upon place. Jesus often goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and this night is no different. Judas sees that Jesus has finished his prayers and is now speaking with Peter, James, and John. And he doesn't hesitate. He goes up to Jesus right away and says, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kisses him. And Jesus receives this gesture of affection willingly. He knows what's going on here. He knows that Judas can't be trusted, but he submits anyway. We've seen Jesus before escape from a crowd who was coming to kill him, but he doesn't do that now. He stands and accepts his fate. What he does do is speak to Judas. He says, friend, do what you came to do. Now, the word that Jesus uses here for friend isn't exactly a friendly term. It's only used in scripture to talk about children's playmates or in reference to wicked and evil men. A more modern but much less formal translation would be something like, all right, buddy, do what you came to do. Je Jesus knows why Judas is here. He knows that Judas is no longer acting as a friend. And now the crowds have seen the sign. And they all draw near and lay their hands on Jesus, 
arresting him. Peter has been watching all of this go down. We know from John's Gospel, Peter was the disciple who stood in the way of the crowds. And Peter and Judas are, in many ways, opposites. But, in many ways, they were very similar. Peter was the first of the disciples whom Jesus called. He was there from the beginning, and he would do anything for Jesus. He was there, too, at the Sermon on the Mount. He helped pass out the bread and the fish to the 5,000. He was there when Jesus walked on the water and calmed the storm. Peter has been close by Jesus' side these three years, and that has bred loyalty and love. So when the crowds lay their hands on Jesus, Peter sees his opportunity. He would do anything for Jesus. He would fight for him. He would die for him. So that's exactly what Peter does. He jumps in the way, he draws his sword, and he slashes at the man closest to him, the servant of the high priest. It's only a glancing blow at first. The sword doesn't quite strike true, it just cuts the guy's ear off, but a second strike will finish the job for sure. Peter is going to stand against the mob and make sure that his lord is going to live to fight another day. But just as Peter raises his sword for the final blow, Jesus stops him. And he says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? Peter is shocked. Here he is, standing against Judas, the traitor. Here he is, standing against the crowds, ready to go out in a blaze of glory, fighting for his Lord. But Jesus stops him. Now really, Peter should have seen this coming. All the way back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus predicts to his disciples, he prophesies that he will die, and three days later, he will rise again. And at that time, Peter took Jesus aside privately and rebuked him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus had a more stern rebuke for Peter. He said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter wanted to keep Jesus from the cross. And Satan wanted to keep Jesus from winning his victory. Here in the garden, this was Satan's final temptation to Jesus. It was as though Satan was saying to Jesus, Look, see how Judas has betrayed you. One of your own has turned against you, and see how Peter fights to keep you from the cross. So fight now, Jesus. Call down the wrath of God on this mob that's come out to arrest you. Destroy them, and the cup of God's wrath will pass from you. But Jesus doesn't yield. He rebukes Peter in the garden just as he rebuked him before. 
Jesus will go to the cross. Jesus will die there. He will drink the cup of God's wrath, and he will do it willingly. In the end, Satan lost. He couldn't defeat Jesus. His head lies crushed beneath the triumphant and conquering heel of Christ. So now his tactics have shifted. Instead of trying to fight against Jesus, who has already won the victory, Satan tempts you. He couldn't keep Jesus from the cross, so instead he tries to keep the cross away from you. And there's a few different ways that Satan does this. One way is to weaponize ignorance about the Bible. The average unchurched person probably thinks Jesus is a really nice guy who just really loves you and wants everybody to love each other. And this love isn't expressed in any kind of sacrifice. This love is tolerance. That Jesus is just okay with breaking the commandments. If God loves me, the lie of Satan goes, then he should just accept me as I am, with all my faults and failures. I mean, what I do down here, these little commandments that I break, that doesn't really affect God, so he shouldn't really care about it. At the end, Jesus is probably just going to let me into heaven anyway. I mean, he's such a nice and loving guy. Satan uses this misunderstanding about the love of Christ to focus people on tolerance rather than on the cross. Because if people understood that Jesus suffered and died for their sins, that might just get them to start thinking. They might contemplate their sins. They might think that maybe what consenting adults get up to behind closed doors is actually something that should be taken pretty seriously. And that could lead to repentance. And Satan definitely can't have that. He wants to drag as many as he can to hell with him. So he pushes this image of Jesus as a loving and tolerant, nice guy who will just let all of your sins slide. But this isn't the only way that Satan works. He works in Christian circles, too. And one way that he does this is to try to get you to set your mind on the things of man rather than on the things of God. Through his tools of false preachers, he dilutes the message of Christianity until it's just about God wanting the best for you in life. He wants you to be successful. He wants your finances to do well. What God really wants is your best life now. Just your victory, your goals, all of those things. And what is telling that so often the preachers that take this route have fleeced their flock of their cash. They have, their, their greed has outweighed their loyalty to God's word. These tools of Satan have betrayed Jesus. In exchange for much more than 30 pieces of silver, but they betrayed him all the same. Preaching the cross is counter to their entire business model. Because the cross might make some people uncomfortable. And if people are uncomfortable, then they might not sit in the pew, and even worse, 
might not give an offering. And so they let the cross fade from their preaching in exchange for temporal and financial success. But Satan doesn't just use his wiles and ways to trick those who are ignorant, who find themselves easily convinced by smooth words. Just like he doesn't just use Jesus, or Judas, excuse me, just like he doesn't just use Judas, but also Peter in his scheme against Jesus, Satan will take any passion and try to misdirect it. There are those in the Christian community who are not taken in by liberal church bodies or secularism, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing to stand against false doctrine in the church, and it's a good thing to look out at the world and to call the world out for their sins. But like Peter's hot-headedness misguided his genuine love for Christ, sometimes these reactions can be taken too far. There are those who stand so firmly against secularism that they cry out for violence. They demand that the laws of the land shift so that God's law is policed by force. They desire that certain sinners would perish at the hands of the executioner so that society would start to look like what God's word actually says. Really, what they want to do is use the sword to further the kingdom of God. This is the lie that Satan has sold them. He's convinced them that they fight a noble battle against the devil, when in reality they have joined his ranks. To them, as to Peter, Jesus says, Put your sword back into its place. Christianity is not and has never been a religion of conquest. Violence never furthers the kingdom of God. The church is triumphant, but not on the battlefield. From the very beginning, the church has followed Christ into suffering. The ones who planted the seeds of Christianity watered those seeds with their very own blood. The faithful apostles would be tortured and killed for their confession. The heroes that we commend on feast days aren't generals and conquerors, they're martyrs who sacrificed everything for the faith. Christianity is fundamentally a religion of sacrifice. And so as Christians, we follow our Lord, and we follow him all the way to Calvary. Jesus went to the cross willingly for your sake. He didn't, need to call, down, he didn't call down 12 legions of angels to fight on his behalf. He didn't need Peter's sword that night in the garden, and he doesn't need yours either. All that Jesus needs is the cross. Jesus doesn't fight so that you can have your best life now. He doesn't fight so your sins can just be tolerated. He fights, but not with swords or clubs, but with his holy, precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. These are Christ's weapons of war. Sacrifice for mercy's sake. So thanks be to God that we don't have to raise our swords to fight the enemy because Christ has already been lifted up on the cross for your sake. Amen.
Now may the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds steadfast in the one true faith until our Lord returns in glory. Amen.